Geek Card presents Back Issue Bloodbath with your hosts, Andrew Young and Padula Neal. And there came a day, unlike any other, where Marvel's first family came together and took a trip to the negative zone as a tribute from a legendary artist who was known for one thing, but decided to do another to tell this story. Welcome to Back Issue Bloodbath. I'm Andrew Young, and this week it is another special episode where we bring our good friend Adam Sakura back to the show. Adam, how you doing? Great, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Well, this is going to air quite later than that, but I guess for our American listeners, Thanksgiving will be coming. So guess, there you go. guess when we recorded this. <laughs> it's good to have you back, and I tend to always have you back on when we are diving into historical characters in the Marvel and DC universes. And uh, there was a particular graphic novel that came out this year that both of us were kind of uh, interested in checking out. You being a longtime Alex Ross fan. And me, I've been in and out with Alex Ross. But I feel like he's really come back into his stride. He's ha he has a second wind happening. Well, uh, it's my understanding that this is his first uh, attempt at a full story, uh, plotted and written by him as well. Although it does basically serve as an unofficial sequel to a Fantastic Four story right from the middle of the original classic uh, Lee and Kirby run. Yeah, that's that. That was the the idea with uh, with this book is that uh, Ross was looking back at the stories of the Fantastic Four and he was surprised that nobody had ever kind of followed up on this particular story. Like with all the stories from the original. Lee and Kirby run that have had sequels or asides or follow-ups, this particular story has kind of just been left to the devices of what it once was. And that particular story was? This Man, This Monster, Fantastic Four 51. Yes, Fantastic Four 51. If you're a big Thing fan, you've read that issue. This is kind of a direct follow-up to it, and as you said, this is the first time where he's kind of done it all he's been full in-house he's the writer he's the artist he's the colorist he's the anchor but what makes it all so special is that it's ross going out of his comfort zone in the sense that he is not bringing the thing that brought him to the dance here this is not a painted comic this is traditional pencil and ink which is something that he's only done like once before for a comic for a full comic. And that was an issue he wrote about his father as a follow-up to Kingdom Come, which his father's reaction when he released that was, why didn't you paint it? Everybody knows you as the painter. Why'd you do, why'd you do this? And so he knows that this is a bit of a gamble, but it's almost like the color scheme, the inks, everything, this has the same level of like, pop and realism that his painted comics do. And it takes advantage of uh, this format it comes in. This, this is a hardcover, and uh, it's slightly larger than your traditional uh, 8, 8.5 by 11 
um, so that we can take a closer look at at the details Mr. Ross has went to the trouble of doing. And uh, it's, it's my understanding for this that uh, he, he actually prepped uh, some fantastic Ford dolls, including uh, sculpting uh, his own thing, so that he could get uh, his, his still You still have his trademark accurate lighting that he would do from, from back in the day of, of Marvel's Kingdom Come. He's, he's done that again for this with with the fantastic four yeah the fantastic four he did these models up and uh it's kind of fitting you know the world's biggest migo fan basically put together his four migos to <laughs> sculpt this story and had them posed any way he wanted to right above uh his drawing board his drawing table and uh yeah they like if you go to his youtube channel there's a lot of informative videos and he does one video where he basically breaks down the making of the models and uh it's 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 amazing to see how excited he gets as he talks about these models which yeah it was kind of interesting because for years he's been using photo reference and this time to actually go to the more physical three-dimensional reference really is interesting now with this story as you said it's a sequel to this man this monster and a character from the previous story kind of shows up and he's he tries to fight the four, then he kind of breaks down, then a gateway to the negative zone starts coming out of him, and the team has to work to try to close that up, and this brings up the further mystery of well, what the hell's going on, and so they head to the negative zone, and they meet an entity there that they've not encountered before which they then try to flee and they end up finding out more about the negative zone and how there's a planet there where uh, a particular character had, that they thought was gone that uh, looked exactly like the character that attacked them at the beginning. Uh, it turns out he resides there. It's a very interesting kind of, kind of pocket story in a pocket universe. And it's a, it is one of those classic like three-act structure very classic Silver Age kind of story of like, and, you know, it all wraps up nicely, but you get some big action beats and it's a big adventure. And, yeah, I think for a long-standing Fantastic Four fan, this is, you know, this is very true to its roots, but for somebody who is like more of a, a novice uh, on Fantastic Four, somebody who hasn't really read too many Fantastic Four stories, this is still like you get everything you need to understand what's going on and can have a fun adventure. Well, I put it out there to uh, anybody newer to Marvel or not as familiar with the Fantastic Four that this this is a proper gateway or introduction story to conceptually what the Fantastic Four is all about and what they've been at Marvel and what they stand for. It is a love letter to the uh, the Kirby lee era and yeah a lot of people right now just more uh, indoctrinated with the mcu and and knowing about various unsuccessful attempts uh, at bringing the fantastic four to film and we're not just talking about the, as, as recent as 2015 or or the two fr from the aughts or even uh, 
uh, one that you can find as a bootleg from from the 90s. In a different episode Andrew had me on, we were talking about a different property. Andrew, you can jump in if you remember. But then we mentioned Fantastic Four, and I had said something Possibly that... Possibly the Avengers? I think we did uh, some on Busiek's Avengers? Uh, possibly. Uh, I'm not 100% sure, but, but when we briefly touched on the Fantastic Four, you defended that, that uh, you know, in the last 15 years or so, there have been some good runs done by some contemporary writers. Yeah, Hickman's is probably um, one of the more interesting... And uh, I let you have that. <laughs> okay, you let but, me have that, all right. But that still doesn't compare to Fantastic Four of old. Marvel is what it is because of the Fantastic Four. The Fantastic Four was created essentially when some editors from DC and Marvel went golfing together. Um, both of those companies were actually under different, still under their old imprint names at the time but uh what was to become dc had had some recent success bringing all their solo heroes together for to become the justice league and essentially kind of be a modern 1960s take on the justice society of world war ii but the bottom line was we're making a fist load of money with this people are loving it so the marvel editor or owner at the time gives one of his chief talents, uh, Mr. Stan Lee, a call and basically told him to put together a team book for Marvel. And right, that I gotta became jump the in Fantastic there. I gotta Four. jump in there for a second. Yeah. It has been that story has been refuted. Okay, we don't one hundred percent know if that story was true. That might have been Stan Lee just waxing nostalgic. Nobody really knows if Martin Goodman went on a golfing trip with Julia Schwartz and that came up. But there was the crux of it, the idea of, oh, another company is having success off of bringing all their old heroes together. That part, definitely true, yes. Uh, well, you know, not a stretch to believe. You see your competitor doing something, uh, you can do it too. All right, let's try it. And that because was we, we also Goodman's, would like to make money. That was Martin Goodman's way. If you actually look at the trends of... Uh, timely comics, all the big errors and trends of comics, Marvel was always following them. It's like, oh, somebody's doing well with Westerns. We're all Western comics now. Somebody's doing well with romance. We're all romance comics now. So, yeah, so uh, definitely before the Marvel Universe, Timely Comics and Atlas Comics were kind of known as the what's the trend, let's jump on it. So this was very much par for the course. Right. So... The Fantastic Four, though, very quickly established itself and kind of the Marvel identity with, with the dynamic it presented. So, so here you had people that were family first. Uh, so we're actually starting to see personalities behind uh, the superhero personas and a lot of conflict because of that. Uh, different group dynamics here because you've, you've got a couple that's eventually going to get married couple of best friends, kind of the bratty kid brother, still high school age, uh, of one of the members who, who likes to, t to tease and be a pain in the ass to mm -hmm. one of the other members. The Thing, who uh, I've always loved as a character, as Benjamin J. Grimm, a, a guy basically who 
because he was the best friend of Reed Richards and agreed to pilot this ship into space where they got bombarded with cosmic rays. Everybody else gets the blessing of their powers that allow them to restore to human form when they're not using them. And this guy is stuck in this uh, shell of rocks mm. uh, for life, despite periods here and there where he's got to be teased and, and, and be human again for a few minutes. But he's always been resolved to make the best of what he's had and contribute to the team. And yeah, these guys didn't wear masks. They were based out of New York, not some made-up metropolis, um, and were beloved public figures that uh, the world followed, and they were known as cosmic adventurers. If they weren't fighting some supervillain, Dr. Doom, we could talk about that on another episode on its own, what his status and stature was, is, and should be as one of Marvel's truly great supervillains. Um, the FF would be off uh, in different dimensions, doing all sorts of stuff and still saving, saving the world and the universe many times over without people being aware of it. All in the meantime, introducing this crazy library of iconic characters. Ross's take here is very uh, true to style, true to that classic style, the, the Lee and Kirby stories of that time, in the sense that the dialogue is very, it's not very verbose. A lot of it is pretty simplistic. The voices of the characters are very defined, but it is very much in the style of the Lee and Kirby scripted stories. The book has a timelessness to it. What I do like is that while still doing a very classic take on the Fantastic Four, Ross found a way to bring his own signature design to the team by creating a plot point where Reed is like, well, we're going to go into the negative zone, but we're not going to be in a ship. So we have to wear these very special uniforms, these special outfits made of a very special kind of unstable molecule. And so he gave himself a chance to do his own take on the Fantastic Four uniforms. Now, it isn't like a crazy redesign or anything like that, but it does have its own signature kind of look. It looks good. Uh, the, the four, the number four on it is a little more stylized. Uh, a parallel just might be the way Tony Stark in the classic Iron Man years basically had a you know a whole a whole armada of different suits built for different environments uh, mm -hmm. for deep sea for going into space um so this looks a lot like the classic fantastic four jumpsuit but like you said there, there's enough that you can see a difference and distinguish it and it even explains a few things and it saves a ross the trouble like before when they would go into the uh, negative zone they'd need these harnesses strapped to their back, the equivalent of jet packs to steer them around. Now that tech is, is built into the suit. So, so we can just draw them in, in the suits and see that, that they're not floating around aimlessly. They're kind of able to steer themselves. Because there, there have been some bad Fantastic Four suits introduced to the team through the years when people tried to get a little contemporary or with the times thinking of the 90s as the most guilty period for that when everybody tried to put a more extreme take on their teams and yeah, it yeah. didn't work. 
Yeah, the other thing that I found kind of cool about the the look of the, these outfits is that with the color and the shading, he kind of gives it almost like a, a shiny chrome type finish to the blue outfits. So it's like obvious that there is almost like a metallic nature to these unstable molecule suits, which I thought was pretty cool. Another thing that I thought was really cool is that he, with the exception of Thing, he gives the other three members big moments to show their powers off. Like, I think the Invisible Woman gets to use her powers in, like, I think several different dynamic ways in this book. And uh, Johnny Storm's, like, just his the threshold of his power is really on display here. And during uh, huge portions of the story, it's almost like Mr. Fantastic has to be the tether, the physical tether for everybody else. There's no point where these showcases feel like, here, we're going to showcase their powers. They fit right into the storyline, and they don't feel out of place at all. It doesn't feel like, a, hey, I thought it would be cool if I could draw this, so I'm going to have somebody say this and do it. Each moment, it's warranted exactly the way they use their powers. And that is classic Fantastic Four. It's not four strangers coming together. It's four people who intimately know and love and trust each other and the flow is is there everybody knows when it's their time to do something or to step back and let uh, somebody else's power be a better solution to whatever situation they're in or how to pool it together um if you look at how ross draws reed richards in this and then pull out some of these old FF issues, you, you see that he's applying his own talent, and it's, it's, there's still some realism to it, but, but it's definitely taken from the Kirby model of Reed Richards' face. The Invisible Woman, uh, like you said, Andrew, she gets to use her powers in multiple ways, uh, which have been developed more so in, in the last 25 years of her existence. Originally, you know, like, like a lot of 60s comics, even the female members of teams would still be relegated to damsel in distress or, or be pretty one-dimensional. And, and before, where Sue Storm would mostly just turn invisible to sneak up on a bad guy and maybe grab something, throw up the odd force field. Now she, she can turn other things invisible. She can create projectiles, uh, structures. You could argue almost that she's almost the most powerful, uh, lethal member of the team. Like she could create something in somebody's windpipe to, to block their air intake mm. and choke them out if, if, if she was feeling ruthless enough and the situation warranted it. And then Johnny Storm, Alex Ross, has basically redefined since Marvel's how if a human being had the ability to catch on fire and fly in our world would look like everybody since has tried to draw uh, any sort of flame and flying combo incorporating some of that look. Right. I also like the attention to detail, a little um, almost Easter eggs. After the Fantastic Four's uh, home in the Baxter building gets attacked Afterwards, in the cleanup, there's like multiple little Herbies doing the cleanup, which 
Again, Herbie was a character created for the Fantastic Four cartoon. Every now and then, artists and writers have found ways to bring Herbie into the comics, but I like it that it's just pretty much just... Here's multiple Herbies as the cleanup crew. They don't really... They don't really affect the rest of the story. He was even thrown into regular continuity in, in, in the early 200s. And I believe there was finally a story where, where Herbie went lethal. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and I don't know why they decided to do that in Mark II of the cartoon in the 70s when the, the original Hanna-Barbera run in, in the late 60s had a torch. Yeah, well, actually, and, uh, okay, everybody, now, everybody was fine with now it. Now I'm remembering there was actually rights issues with somebody had gotten the rights for a Human Torch cartoon, and so who, whoever was putting together a Fantastic Four cartoon could be given the rights to read Sue and the Thing, but the torch was already wrapped up in a cartoon that ended up not coming out. Boo. So yeah, so there we go. That's the mystery on that one. Oh, man. There you go, folks. For all you Herbie diehards. <laughs> now, the one thing that uh, really shocked and surprised me about this book is that uh, there's all these amazing elaborate backgrounds in this. And Ross came out saying he hates drawing backgrounds. And so for this book, he waited to the end of each page to draw the background. And he'd instead lay out the page in thumbnail, then do all the figure drawing, then he would force himself to finish the backgrounds. And when you look at some of these pages, it's like, oh my God, if this is what you're drawing something you hate, you know, the stuff you love must look like 10 times better because these are such elaborate backgrounds, so pretty, and his, his choice of uh, coloring for each of them, they, they give like off such a different, interesting environment. Ross has lovingly done all this business by hand and puts the time in and it shows. And once again, with this bigger format, you just want to stop or go back to some of these pages to, to fully just take it in and appreciate what's laid out there. Yeah, I think with this book, it's really showing like a reinvention of himself, but also like he's learned to fall in love with comics again. Because let's face it, like I've mentioned it before, Alex Ross, very talented artist, but at the height of his popularity, which would have been the mid-2000s, he was just doing posters and covers, a lot of times with no backgrounds, and he had gotten down to just using the same two models for his male and female characters. And so there was a period in the mid-2000s where I wasn't really compelled to pick up anything Alex Ross based because it felt like he was almost phoning it in and then slowly over time getting to work on covers of Pulp Heroes and stuff it seemed like he was really getting back into it but now with this book it seems like he's fully found his stride again and hopefully this leads to more cover to cover full interiors by Ross which is something he hadn't been doing since the 90s. And uh, yeah, I I don't know what the is next in line for the for this imprint, which is uh, Abrams Comics Arts. Yeah, Abrams com. Comics Arts. They've been, I believe, they have a contract with Marvel now for this, because of course the Abrams Comics Arts has the sub imprint on the front of the cover of Fantastic Four Full Circle that just says Marvel Arts. 
So, yeah, I don't know what's what's happening next. And, and is that tied into J.J. Abrams? I don't think I've had a chance to ask anybody I don't anybody know. That. I actually haven't looked into it either. Because that would kind of almost make sense with, with some, of the, some of his background and what he's a fan of. But maybe I'm assuming too much there. Mm. Folks who are listening, if you want to correct us or give us a shout with the scoop on that, I'd be interested. Yeah, definitely. But overall, I think it's a really entertaining read and... It is a like such a beautiful book that you could get lost in a page. Like there's some big splashes in here, and then even just the layout of the book. Like he makes a lot of choices of doing angular panels and things like that, which Kirby experimented with that, and so did some other artists and stuff. It really comes off as like slick and clean here, and the panel layouts are not the same on every page. It's it's kind of interesting how he takes almost like a different route to each new page that he does in this book. In terms of the story itself, like I, you said earlier, there might be a, a, a feeling of simplicity to it, but I, I believe it's, it, it's molded with enough conventions of modern storytelling and, and between the Easter eggs and picking up some, some loose ends of, of the source material. I think this this stands up as as a great little adventure on its own. One thing I was mentioning to you before we got rolling here, they actually named the the mystery scientist that was in the original story and is kind of the uh, the focal point of of this story. And and he finally gets a name uh, when the thing asks him, and the guy says his name is Ricardo Ricardo Jones. And that seems like such a random choice when you could name him anything and we've got a Rick Jones in the Marvel Universe. So I don't know what's what was up with that and why they didn't just leave the guy nameless. Unless that's what he's always called him in his head as a fan <laughs> through the years. And he's like, I'm going to let everybody else know what to call this guy. The other thing, I can't stress enough because you either know what I'm talking about or will read it and buy into this and, and get a glimpse of it and want more or think I'm totally out there. But it's just, this story has heart. That That's another trademark of Fantastic Four when this title was the flagship of the Marvel Universe. They were the premier team. More so than the Avengers, because the Avengers were a collection of guys and gals, a lot of them who had their own individual books, and that's where you'd see their characters develop. They would just get lumped together to fight whatever menace their collective powers were needed for. And the X-Men, forget about it. If anybody who, who remembers, they were on, on the verge of cancellation before the unveiling of, of the new X-Men and then the, finally the long road to them becoming established as Marvel's true bread and butter. And then, of course, you know, your old staple, good old Spider-Man on his own, but, you know, he was still a, like a city superhero doing his thing, figuring things out, paying the rent, looking after Aunt May. For Cosmic, you go with Fantastic Four. One other Easter egg, it was a sidebar in this. On the way from A to B in this adventure, we actually get a glimpse of another one of their classic villains, uh, Annihilus. I love Ross's rendition of him here, fully insectoid and metallic. But, uh, you know, the FF play it smart. They don't have to engage in a fight with him, so they don't. They kind of sneak by and around him when they're in his turf in the negative zone. 
and they'll deal with him another day. But it's just a reminder that the Fantastic Four's world and the people, good and bad in it, there's just so many. A lot of the villains and threats that the Fantastic Four had to deal with, definitely. Um, but yeah, so this is available through Abrams Comics Arts. You can get it at your local comic shop. Get it wherever comics are sold. Get it at bookstores. Uh, you can also get a digital version, but I would definitely recommend getting the physical copy. I read it digitally first, and I still had to go out and get my hands on a hard copy for my shelves. This is worth it, folks. Especially if you're a Thing fan. The original hard-done-by guy from Brooklyn. This is his character and him on the team. Shamelessly, if anyone puts a gun to my head and makes me want to pick my favorite of the four, it, it was, is, and always will be Benjamin J. Grimm. Well, there you go. Well, Adam, I want to thank you for coming on uh, this episode. Uh, where can people find you? As usual, if you want to uh, comment on today, answer any questions we've put, uh, ask anything about what we've put out there, future suggestions or comments, you can find me on Twitter at AdamSecor71. There you go. And, of course, you can find everything I do over at GeekArtShow.com. Follow me on Twitter at GeekArt. Follow this very show on Facebook at Back Issue Bloodbath, where we post the new episode every week. But the best way to make sure that you don't miss an episode is to subscribe to us on your podcasting platform of choice. And after you've done that, go out, tell a friend, maybe someone you haven't seen in a while. Hey there, how you doing? I miss you. I care about you. I care about you so much, I want you to listen to Back Issue Bloodbath. Because that's what a true friend does. This has been Back Issue Bloodbath. I've been Andrew Young. And this was Adam Sakura. Have yourself a good...